As always, around this time of the year, around this holiday, we, we never know what to expect as far as attendance is concerned, but I think this is probably the most people we've had in church around this, this holiday time, so praise God for that. But even if there were just two or three of you, we know what Jesus promises. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. And so that's what we're thankful for today. God is here. God is with us. And now we want to honor him by looking toward his word. Today we're going to read, we're getting into chapter 4 now. All of chapter 4 is about the life of Abraham. And what I wanted to do today was to preach a sermon that covers the entire chapter, chapter 4. Because it all deals with the man, Abraham, and his life of faith. But as I studied it this week, I just thought, there's no way I can do that. That's much too ambitious. And so we're going to break chapter 4 up into three parts. And over the next three sermons, we're going to look at Abraham's faith as it's taught in Romans chapter 4. Today we're going to see his saving faith. Next week we will talk about his obedient faith. And in week number three, we will consider his living faith. But today we're looking at just this portion, Abraham's saving faith. So if you'll open your Bibles to Romans chapter 4, again we're going to read from verse 1 to 8 today, and we're going to learn more about what it meant for Abraham to have faith. What is saving faith? What kind of qualities can we find in such faith? So find that, would you, in your Bibles and stand with me as I read these verses. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Saving faith. Let me begin with a quick illustration to show what I think Paul is doing here in these verses. Many years ago when I was a teenager, I went fishing a lot with my brother and somebody from church, and we went maybe once a month, twice a month, especially during the summertime. And every time we'd go out, we would take the boat out about 25 miles into the deep ocean of the Atlantic, and we would reach what was called a buoy, a flowing object in the water made out of metal. And that buoy that floats in the water, it's actually anchored all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. 
tens of feet or perhaps a hundred or more feet down below, it was anchored. And it was always fixed in that position. And every time we would take our boat out, we would reach that buoy, we would take a rope and wrap it around it and tie it to the boat, and then we would let the slack out and we would drift. And as the day would go by, as we're busy fishing and all the things that are happening during the day, I was always amazed that when I looked back at the buoy, it was so far. And it happened so quickly. When you're not paying attention, you drift so far from where you started. But when we did, all we did was just take that rope and pull the boat closer back to that buoy again. And we would continue that throughout the day. At any moment of the day, if we wanted to know where we were in that ocean, all we had to do was look for the buoy to see just how far we had drifted. And I believe that this can sort of describe what Paul is now doing in these verses. You see, because last week we read those verses, or that one verse, that key verse in Romans that says that a man is justified by faith, apart from works. By faith alone is a man saved or a woman saved, apart from any works that you do. And when people hear that, especially in Paul's day, they begin to wonder, is that really true? Is that even possible? Is God's grace really that big and wonderful that it's only through faith in Jesus that we're saved? And you know, when people begin to wonder especially when they read the Bible, wondering is a good thing. In fact, if you read through your Bible and never wonder, something's wrong. But you wonder about the things that you're reading and you chew on it and you meditate on it, you pray about it. And sometimes I will wonder about the verses I read and I walk away from the Bible, I'll take a walk around my house and I wonder, what is God saying? And sometimes I come to a conclusion. But then when I go back to the Bible and continue reading, I find out, wait a minute, I was wrong. My conclusion was wrong because the Bible actually says this. When you read the Bible, you might read things that cause you to wonder. Maybe sometimes it's because something you read is quite hard to believe. Like we can be saved by simply trusting in Jesus. And you might wonder. The problem is if you continue wondering outside of the scripture. That wondering will cause you to end up wandering away from the truth of God's word. Just like our boat, when I wasn't paying attention, how quickly it wandered away from the buoy. And when you wander away from the truth of God, all you've got to do is get yourself back to where you started, back to the word of God. And to me, this is exactly what Paul is doing. Because the Jews had wondered about these things. And they couldn't believe these things. And it caused them to wonder and, and to wander away from the truth of God. And so now Paul is calling them back to the scripture. And he's going to say to them, what does the scripture say? What does it say? Because it's important to know. Do you know that today, especially with our young people who I love very much. I see some of them here in church today. And every Friday, well, almost every Friday night, we have Youth Connect at my home. And when you get together with young people, you'll hear a lot of questions, a lot of wondering going on, and they hear about what's happening in the world and what these people say and what those people say. And so when we all get together, they have many questions because they are, they're wondering. 
What is the truth in all this? And when I hear all the questions, I believe it is my duty, my responsibility as their shepherd to bring them to what the Scriptures say. I don't want our kids to wonder so much that they wander away from the Scriptures. It's important to bring them back and say, listen, here's what God says about what that individual is teaching. You hear what those people in that culture say and think? But let me tell you what God says from His Word. And we've got to learn to come back to the truth of God. And so the Jews are wondering, Paul, if it's only through simply faith in Jesus, what about Abraham? What about Abraham? What are the heroes of Scripture? Where it really all began for the Jewish people. It began with Abraham. What about Abraham, Paul? I mean, wasn't he a man of great works? Didn't he do such wonderful things for God? And the answer is, yes, he did. Abraham absolutely did many good works. In fact, in his whole life with God, he learned more and more how to be a living sacrifice for God. Yes, but the question is, coming back to the Scriptures, how was Abraham saved? When was Abraham saved? Come back to the Scriptures, read it. Was he saved because of what he did? Or was he saved because he believed in God? And so now Paul is bringing us to the truth of the Scriptures, and I love how he says this. He says in verse 1 and 2, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, well, then he has something to boast about, doesn't he? And we've already learned how God feels about boasting. And we already learned last week that when it comes to salvation, you will not boast. Because it's not you that did the work of salvation. It is Jesus and only Jesus. We boast in Christ. And so now Paul is saying, listen, if Abraham was saved by his works, then he's got something to boast about. And as I've already said, God will have no boasting. But instead of getting into some sort of philosophical debate and argument with the Jews, he simply says, what do the Scriptures teach? What does the Bible actually say? Amen. Let's find out what it says. As we learn about the faith of Abraham today, what we're calling saving faith, we're going to see what kind of faith this was. And first I want to show you that saving faith, number one, it's simple. Number two, it is miraculous. And number three, it is blessed. Amen. So let's take a look at the faith of Abraham and consider, number one, saving faith, it is simple. Verse three, for what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now today, we're focusing on those three words, at least in step one here. Abraham believed God. That's what the Scriptures tell us. Paul is quoting Genesis chapter 15. And next week we're going to learn it's important that that verse is exactly in Genesis chapter 15. 
and you'll find out why next week. But for today, just that phrase, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God. Notice it doesn't say Abraham believed in God. It could have said that, and maybe that's what Paul means, but that's not what it says. It doesn't say he believed in God. It says he believed God. And to me, that means two things. It means that he does believe in God, but he also believes what God says. He also believes when God speaks, it is true. I believe God. When God first spoke to Abraham, he called Abraham out of his home, out of his family, out of the society where he, as well as everybody else, worshipped idols and false gods. But then the one true God of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, spoke to Abraham. And he said, Abraham, leave this place and go to a place where you've never been before. And Abraham, Abraham believed God and went to where God told him to go. Abraham believed God. He also believed that God was a savior. He knew that. He knew that salvation was found in God. Now, a lot of people ask a question today, and it's a very good question. All the people that lived before Jesus, how were they saved? I mean, if we preach today that by faith in Jesus Christ, and that only, are we saved, well then, what about the people that lived before Jesus? What about Abraham, who was many, many, many years before Jesus ever came into the world? How was Abraham saved? Well, number one, I'll tell you this, that from beginning to end, man is always saved by faith. Always. But you know, I believe that even the people in the Old Testament, like Abraham, Moses, David, Isaiah, even though they never met the man Jesus because they lived long before him, yet they believed that God was sending a Messiah into the world. I believe that all those people who believed God in the Old Testament, when they made their sacrifices of animals and poured the blood for forgiveness of sin, they did that knowing that one day God would send his own sacrifice once and for all. And so man lived in the Old Testament looking forward to the promise of God that he would send a Messiah into the world to save us from our sin. And so they lived by faith. We believe what God has said. We believe God has promised to send us Messiah and he shall come. And I believe it's even more than that. There's a story of Abraham taking Isaac up Mount Moriah. Why? Because God told him to. Abraham believed God. God told Abraham, take your son, your only son, up to the mountain and sacrifice him to me there. Wow. And Abraham took Isaac. Why? Because he believed God. And when they got to the top of the mountain, and Isaac said to his father, Dad, we've got the wood, we've got a knife, we've got the fire, but where's the lamb for a sacrifice? And Abraham, by faith, said, Son, don't worry. God will provide for himself a lamb. And when they got to that place and they made the altar, he laid Isaac on that altar, took the knife, and God stopped him 
Abraham, don't touch your son. And when Abraham looked behind him, there was a ram caught in the bushes. And he got the ram, and that ram took the place of Isaac, and he sacrificed it to God. And when all that happened, Abraham called that mountain by a new name. He said, from now on, this mountain will be called Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord shall provide. Because he said that on this mountain, the Lord shall provide. He didn't say on this mountain, the Lord did provide. No, he shall provide. Shall provide what? Abraham said, God himself shall provide the lamb. And do you know that more than a thousand years later, on that very same mountain of Moriah, the city of Jerusalem, Jesus, the Lamb of God, was crucified for the sin of the world. I don't know exactly all that Abraham knew, but by faith he knew that Jesus would come and be the sacrifice for all mankind. In the New Testament, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, and when he saw it, he was glad. So Abraham knew the promise of God, and he believed it. And it wasn't just Abraham. Jacob, also prophesying over his sons, said to Judah, out of your family, there will always be rule. There will always be someone with a scepter to rule over the people until Shiloh comes, meaning the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Jesus will come through you, Judah. Jacob believed that, and that's exactly the way it happened. Moses said to all the people before he died, that a day is coming where God will raise up a prophet like me. And when he speaks, it will be the very words of God. He will be like me. He will be a shepherd to you. He will be your intercessor. And he will be the very voice of God. He was speaking of Jesus. And on down the line, David. David saw Jesus crucified, the one who was pierced in his hands and in his feet. The one who died for mankind. David saw that, and he prophesied of it. He also said that the Lord said to this same person, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David knew Jesus was coming, and so did Isaiah. Isaiah 53, he saw Jesus beaten and scourged, bleeding, led to the slaughter like a lamb, crucified for us. 500 years before Jesus came, Isaiah could see him, believed in him. And Daniel, Daniel in a vision, he said, behold, one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approaches God who's sitting on the throne in all of heaven and all the earth. Worship this one man, this glorified person in heaven. Who was he talking about? the one who was coming, Jesus Christ. And then John the Baptist, they said to John, are you that prophet? Are you that Christ, the one who's coming? And he said, no, he's coming though, soon. When he comes, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. He will be mighty. This will be Messiah. And then finally, John pointed out Jesus and said, behold, the Lamb of God, the same one that Abraham saw 
way back on Mount Moriah. On this mountain, he said, God will provide a lamb. So the people who believed God in the Old Testament, they believed his promises. They believed that he would send one to save the world. And they looked forward to that day. They lived by faith. Abraham believed God. That's the one thing that connected Abraham to God. Abraham believed God. And the same is true for us today. The one thing that connects you to God is believing Him. Through your belief, through your faith, through your trust, you have a relationship with God. So, let us, the church, let us come back to this place. Let us come back. You may have wandered. You may have thought that to be saved, you've got to do certain things and live a certain way and keep up with the standard. And maybe you've left this truth of God. Well, today, come back. Come back to the simple faith in the Lord. Come back to the simplicity of just simply trusting in God the way Abraham did and so many more like him. And it's not that the accomplishing of salvation was simple. That wasn't simple. Accomplishing salvation, that cost God everything. It cost God the Son to come into this world as a man and to live and to die for you and me. Salvation costs God everything. But to be saved costs you nothing. Just simply trusting in Him. As Paul says, Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's come back to that simple truth. That God crediting us righteous that God justifying us, God redeeming us, God adopting us, all happens because we believe. Amen. You know, when John wrote his gospel, Matthew and Mark and Luke already wrote their gospels. And many years had gone by. And in the days of John, when John was an older man, there were many teachings about Jesus. Why? Because people began to wonder about who Jesus was. And instead of going to the scriptures, they looked elsewhere and began to think about Jesus philosophically and, and logically. And they began to wander away from the truth of scripture. And many people had all kinds of weird beliefs about who Jesus was. And so John said, it's time for me to pick up a pen and write a gospel. And the entire point of John's gospel was to make sure people knew without a doubt that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. So John writes his story about Jesus. All the miracles, all the words that he remembered, all many, many things. And toward the end of the gospel, John says, there's many more things I could have written about. There's so much more. But I tell you these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that believing, you may have life in his name. That was John's way of bringing us back to the simplicity 
of just trusting in Jesus for our salvation. Saving faith is a simple faith. I believe God. Amen? Are you with me? Amen. Number two, it is miraculous. Saving faith is a miraculous faith. He says in verse 4, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Now you know grace and debt have no place with each other. You can't have grace where there is debt. You can't have debt where there is grace. And if you are trusting in your work, you're not depending on grace. You're depending on somebody being in debt to you, as though somebody owes you something. Well, imagine this. Imagine you worked all month long. April was a difficult month for you. And you worked more hours than normal. You were under so much pressure. You had to meet deadlines and goals. And you had to manage people. This was a really difficult month. And you worked harder and longer than any other month before. And then May 1st comes. And the boss calls you into his office and says, Hey, on this day, I have a gift for you. Just out of my kindness, just purely grace, I just want to be kind to you. I'm going to give you a paycheck for what you did in the month of April. What would your thoughts be about that? A gift? Kindness? That's not grace. You owe me that money. I worked for it. I earned it. I deserved it. I didn't do this for free. You owe it to me. When I work for you, boss, you are in debt to me, and you owe me money. Am I right? Is that the way it works? This is not how it works with God. With God, he doesn't owe anybody anything, and God will never be in debt to anyone. So what does God do? He takes away the work from your hands. The work of salvation. He takes it from you and Jesus does all the work for you. So that what you receive is not owed to you. It's not a debt to you. It comes purely by kindness and grace and mercy. It is the gift of God. Something that you cannot earn. God doesn't owe us a thing. All that we have received from God is grace, free. He also says in verse 5, but to him who does not work, again, this is about salvation, to the one who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Consider all the miraculous power of God. Consider the fact that when God made all the worlds, the galaxies and the trillions of stars that are in the universe, all it took was a word. God spoke, and there it was. And that same God came into this world, Jesus. That same God spoke into a dead man's tomb and simply said, Lazarus, come forth. And a dead man came walking out of that tomb. All the miraculous power of God. Amen? Do you know the greatest miracle God has ever done? Beyond the universe, 
beyond Lazarus, beyond anything we've ever known, the greatest miracle of God is that God justifies the ungodly. That's the greatest miracle. Do you know that the Bible doesn't teach us that God will justify you after you make some improvements? It doesn't say that God will justify you the day that you decide, today I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to start brand new today. God doesn't wait for that. God does not wait you to improve yourself. Otherwise, the Bible would say that God justifies the improved. God justifies those who have started brand new again. No. And it doesn't even say that God justifies the saints or God justifies the Christian. It says God justifies the ungodly man or the ungodly woman. God justifies the sinner. That is a miracle indeed. The fact that God justifies sinners. Do you know if a man goes to court because he has been accused of committing a crime, if that man is innocent and he knows that he's innocent, he'll go before the judge, he'll plead not guilty, and then he will prove, show the evidence that he's not guilty. And when he pleads not guilty, he then hopes to be treated fairly. If he's not guilty, then all he can do after that is hope that at least he will be treated with fairness. But if the man is guilty, he's to plead guilty. And once he pleads guilty, the only thing he can hope for then is mercy, forgiveness. When we approach God, we cannot say not guilty because we are guilty. We're very guilty. We cannot come to God and say, I'm not guilty. Now let me show you the evidence on why I'm not guilty. It doesn't work like that because we are guilty. The only thing we can do before God is to say, God, I am guilty. And all I can hope for is mercy and forgiveness. Do you know, if we approach God and we claim we're not guilty, what you're really doing is saying, God, I'm not guilty. Here's my proof. Now be fair. I want fairness. No, you don't. No, you don't. If you want fairness before God the judge, then he will judge you on the spot and send you directly to eternal hell to suffer forever. That's what's fair for the sinner. But instead we come to God and we say, God... I admit it, I am guilty. I don't want fairness, God. I need forgiveness. I need mercy. And forgiveness we shall have because we trust in Jesus Christ. We come to God not for fairness, but for forgiveness. And the miracle of it all is that we receive it. That's the true miracle. God, you created a marvelous universe. All things you created. God, can you make me a new creation? God, can you take what is so messed up 
what is broken, what is shattered, and fix it? God, can you look upon this sinful man, dead in his trespasses and sins, and call my name and raise me to life? I believe in the God who justifies the ungodly. Amen. Today you come to God, ungodly and a sinner. The best thing for you to do is say, Lord, I admit it. I admit it. Forgive me. And we receive it. God justifies the sinner, the ungodly. And Paul says, if you believe that, if that's what you believe today, then God credits you as righteous. Wow, what a miracle. Last, number three, saving faith, it is blessed. Paul now goes into not just Abraham, but also someone else in the Old Testament, David. Not that we can't learn this from Abraham, but he's going to quote David. He says in verse 6 to 8, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes David from Psalm 32 by saying, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. That word impute comes up twice in that text. And it means to credit. Yeah, just like crediting somebody's bank account. Like going to a Mac machine, dialing up somebody's account, and you transfer money to it. That's crediting someone's account. And the person who receives it, they didn't have it before, but they do now. Why? Because you credited them that money. In the same accounting term, Paul says that God credits you with righteousness. He transferred it to your account. Righteous. And David also says, blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not credit sin. David said this. David. You know David. Yes, that David. The David that we always talk about who committed adultery and killed that woman's husband. There, that David. Do you know every time we consider that story, oftentimes we hear that story and we say, David, you sinned. David, you're guilty. Why? Because you committed adultery and you had a man killed. Murder. But that's not all David did. That's not the only two things by which he sinned. When David did this sin, it wasn't just adultery and murder. It began with David coveting what didn't belong to him. It began with David wishing he had what somebody else had, that woman, Bathsheba. It started with covetousness. And instead of surrendering these things to God and asking God for help, instead, David made himself God in the situation. And in doing this, he did whatever he wanted to do. And he made Bathsheba into an idol. And he said, I must have her, and I must have her tonight. And then David took what did not belong to him. He stole her away. And in doing so, did he not dishonor his parents and her parents and all the family that's involved? Of course he did. And then he lied about it. 
over and over again. So it wasn't just simply adultery and murder. It was many of these things. Covetousness, lying, dishonoring his parents, making himself God, creating an idol. By that one act, David committed such a great crime before God. And this same David says, blessed are all those. Blessed means happy. Multiple happy. Meaning, happy, happy is the man. Happy, happy is the woman who has received God's righteousness. Not because of that person's goodness, but because God is good. Blessed are we. Happy are we that we have received God's righteousness. Not because of any claim to our own good works in life, but because we simply trust in the one who did all the work of redemption, Jesus. We are a blessed people because we have faith in Jesus. I am so happy that I am forgiven. Are you? I am so happy because my sins are covered, never to be found again. I am so happy because my sins are erased. God has cleansed them. God has blotted them out of existence. And God does not hold the memory of my sin anymore. I am happy because my sins are not only forgiven, they are forgotten by God. What an amazing God we have. I read a story many years ago. There was a rich businessman who bought a new car, a Rolls-Royce. You ever hear of that car? Yeah, you'll know it's one of the most expensive cars there is. A Rolls-Royce. He lived in England, bought it in England, but then he took a business trip down into France, beyond Paris. And so he took his Rolls-Royce, he drove it through England, got on the ferry boat, into France and drove all the way past Paris. And somewhere along that trip, his Rolls-Royce broke down. And so he phoned, took a phone and called Rolls-Royce in England, and immediately they flew a mechanic to meet him where he was. The mechanic came, inspected the car, knew what needed to be done, and fixed the car. Then got back on the plane and went home. And that businessman thought, wow, what service. And I wonder how much that is going to cost me. But there was no bill. That repairman just simply left. And then the weeks turned into months. And the rich man heard nothing from Rolls Royce. So he finally wrote a letter to them and sent it. And in the letter he was requesting his account to be made good. The debt to be paid. I need an invoice for the work done. And sometime later, he received a very courteous note that simply said, Sir, we have no record of anything that happened to your Rolls-Royce. In other words, Rolls-Royce, they refused to even consider the fact. They refused to admit that there was anything wrong with the product that they gave to him. According to them, it never happened. Well, do you know God has done the same with us? Because according to God, 
We come to Him and He forgives us of all of our sin and our past is forgotten as though we never sinned in the first place. God carries no record of the past wrongdoings in our life. The next time you feel bogged down because of life, the next time you are frustrated, the next time you are disappointed in yourself, the next time you realize yet again that we are so undeserving of such great miraculous love from God, God says, be happy. Be happy. God has forgiven you all your sin. And as David would also write, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is how much God removes sin from your life. He moves it at a distance that is as far as east is from west. Let me ask you, if we start heading east in the universe, how far do we go until we reach east? We don't. It, just go, it goes on and on forever. There's no end to the direction of east. Okay, well then let's go west. At what point will I reach the place called west? You won't, because it goes on and on forever. So with that, God says, here's how far I have removed your sin from you. I removed it from forever to forever. Can you calculate that? No, you can't. From forever to forever. Or from forgotten to forgotten. So has God removed our sin from us. Praise the name of the Lord. And God says, I, even I, shall blot out your transgressions. The book that carries all the lists of the sins that you have done in your life, God blots them out. Open that book and look, and all you will see is white page after white page after white page. That's what God has done. As far as the east is from west. Amen. That gives us a reason to live a happy, happy life. Let me end it by quoting a hymn. There's a hymn that was written called, It Is Well With My Soul. And this hymn is basically all about all the sufferings and the trials and the difficulties of life. All the things that we must bear, all the places we must go, all the hardships we must endure. But in the middle of this hymn, the writer gives a reason to be happy. He says, my sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Amen. Do you praise the Lord? Amen. Your sin, Jesus, bared upon the cross, and no longer, no longer does God call you guilty but now you are righteous. He has justified sinners like us. Musicians, would you come as we prepare for communion?
Saving faith. How was Abraham saved? Abraham was saved because he believed God. It was simple, miraculous, and it's a blessed thing. Saving faith. The question is, do you have that faith? Do you believe God? You know, there are some who will say, I believe in God, but I don't do what he says. I have no, no desire to follow his commands. Well, then you don't believe God. The question is, do you believe in God? Do you believe God? And today I pray that the Holy Spirit has brought you back to this simple thing, to the simplicity of just trusting in Jesus to save you. And to know that you have that salvation purely because of Jesus dying on the cross for you. Amen. Let's prepare our hearts for communion today. God, at this time, we want to consider what we call the Lord's Supper, where we remember that Jesus gave his life for us. Oh God, here is a glorious truth. In one moment, we don't remember, or I should say, you don't remember the sins of our past. We have a brand new life in Christ. And we're not to look back at all the sins we committed and allow those things to become chains on us, to become burdens once again. We are not to remember, God, if you forget those things, then show, so should we. But here's what we do remember. We look back and all we see is the cross of Jesus Christ because that's where our sin died. That's where we died. That's where our sin was forgiven and overcome. That's where we were changed and went from death to life. So thank you, God, that there are things that we are to forget and yet there is one thing we should never forget and we will never forget. Jesus died for me. And that's what we are celebrating here today. The body that was broken and the blood that was shed for us. Let's all stand together. Can we sing that song? Let's give thanks to the Lord.